He came to give a testimony of Christ, John the Baptist. So how do we do this? How do we live? How do we explain to people the Christ? How do we give a good witness with our lives? How do we do that? It might not always look like a sermon or a Sunday school lesson. Let me say that again. A lot of people get that confused. It might not always look like a sermon or a Sunday school lesson. It might be as simple as the way you love your wife or your children in front of others. Just, just think about this for a second. This is uh, total conjecture, but I think there's some validity in it. We will be perfected in heaven. That is biblical truth, 100%. There, we will not be tainted by sin, uh, disease, genetic abnormality. Uh, anything that was a result of the fall will not be affecting us in heaven. So I want you to imagine right now what it would sound like if your voice was perfect. Now imagine all of us collectively together singing praises to God with voices that are perfect. Now, I literally can't even fathom that, the sound that that would make. The, the, you know, very few people have, have, have actually heard four-part harmony. Three-part harmony is amazing, it's beautiful, but I, I can't imagine what almost every single uh, note or intonation or octave or uh, frequency could be, could be made by a voice, but imagine every single thing in all of the universe praising God in perfection. Just if you fathom that for a second, that is absolutely amazing. Totally has nothing to do with the sermon, but it's just it's 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 awesome to 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 get together and to worship together, and what a joy and what an uh, encouragement that is for us as saints. So before we get into uh, John chapter one verses six through eight, as we continue on in our exposition of John, please bow with me, Lord, as we prepare to read your word, to get into your word to sit under the teaching and the preaching of your word, God, that your spirit would move in a mighty way, Lord, that you would draw us closer to yourself. God, that you would reveal truths, Lord, that you would turn the diamond of Scripture. And Father, through the illumining light of the Holy Spirit, God, that we would see your truth refracted in some meaningful, meaningful way, in some way that pierces to our hearts, God, let us not be a people that is superficial in our religion. God, let us be a people that is practical, that is devoted, that is serious about the things of God and excited about the things of God. And let us be a group of people who finds great joy in your word. Lord, it is in your perfect and holy and precious and mighty and wonderful name we pray. And in accordance with your will we ask. Amen. So uh, let me delineate something real fast just from a teaching per perspective here. Uh, so <clears throat> there's a couple Johns. Uh, there's actually not a couple. There's a few Johns in the New Testament. And specifically the writer of the book of John, all right, also known uh, as a son of Zebedee. Uh, he was known as a son of thunder. Uh, he was the beloved disciple. All right, so this was, if you will, uh, one of the three of Jesus' inner circle. All right, he was the one who uh, laid his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. They were close. They knew each other very well. And so John, we have to delineate between uh, the Apostle John and the John that we're about to talk about because the Apostle John is going to write about John the Baptist. And so we have to understand that there's, there's two different guys there. So the guy who wrote the book of John, all right, or at least dictated the book of John, this is the Apostle He's also the same guy who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he's also the same guy who Jesus gave the book of Revelation to. 
or the revelation to. So different guy than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about his providence, his history, uh, some background on him, but they're two totally separate guys, all right? Not the same guy. Just want to put that out there real fast. So if you will, if you have your Bible, uh, please read along with me. We're uh, going to be in John chapter 1, again, verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now, if you have the NASB, could you leave that last slide up there for me? If you have the NASB, you'll notice that that light in both those those, uh, lines right there is capitalized, so we understand that, again, John the Baptist comes and he's going to testify about the light, and the light is Christ. So anytime we see uh, a, a word that might not necessarily say God or Son or Spirit in the NASB and in a lot of other translations, if it's capitalized, like here, light, that is uh, referring to uh, the deity of whatever member of the Godhead that this is focused on. So this right here specifically is about Jesus Christ. So, verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Here's our first point. John the Baptist was the foretold prophet of God. He was the foretold prophet of God. Now, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, this is is a very creative word. Uh, I I bet nobody could guess this once you hear it, what it's actually called. Period of about 400 years, it was called the intertestamental period. So between the Old Testament and between the New. So we're intermediate right in the middle, all right? So there's this span of time for for nearly 400 years uh, with the closing of the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, all the way up until we start with John the Baptist, God had literally, at least in recorded history, been absolutely silent. There was no utterings from him. There were no words from him, at least that were not written down. And so that gives us great insight to this this time when we depart from the old covenant system and Jesus Christ ushers in the new covenant. There was a time of preparation. There was a long time of preparation. But God promised us certain things. Malachi 3, 1 through 2. Behold, I, and this is God speaking, behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. He says, the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. So here we literally have, uh, again, this is out of Malachi, the prophecy of John the Baptist coming. And, and it's literally saying that he's going to go and clear the way before me. Does it, say Je- it doesn't say Jesus. If you look down in your Bible, it doesn't say he's going to clear the way before Jesus. It's one of those personal pronoun things where the, the me is capitalized. So go back to the very beginning, verse, verse 1, if you don't mind. Behold, I am going to send my messenger. Think about that for a second. What, what can we draw from this in the Old Testament context? We can draw off, off the bat that ultimately John the Baptist is going to go before God. It's interesting as it pertains to our arguments of the deity of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Because who did John the Baptist go before? Jesus. 
And so very clearly here, even from an Old Testament perspective, we're understanding that Jesus Christ is God. And that is an awesome argument for those who would try and demean or uh, reduce or eliminate the deity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So who is he? Who's this cat, John the Baptist? What is he doing? Why is he weird? All right. A lot of people say, well, what do you mean, why is he weird? Uh, let's see, because he wore camel skin, he ate uh, locusts and wild honey, and he lived in the desert. He looked like a rough dude, to be perfectly honest. Because I've, I've spent many, many, many months in Arabian deserts. They're not the most hospitable environments, and they're not the cleanest environments. And so here you have a guy who's literally wandering around in leather in the desert, eating honey and locusts. And then he flips the entire established religion, or at least the religious leaders, on their head with a certain message, but we still have to back up a little bit. We have to understand where did this guy come from. So in, in short, he was born of Zacharias, a priest from the line of Abijah, and Elizabeth, a barren woman, a woman who could not conceive, who did not have a child up until this point in her life, and she was of the line of Aaron. So both of them with very uh, prestigious priestly descents. Very prestigious. Interestingly enough, like the Christ, the birth of John the Baptist, excuse me, was divinely foretold. This is Luke 1, verses 12 through 17. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah." to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's really interesting um, just how that's expressed, how that's, that angelic message, ultimately that, that message from God is given first and foremost, who it's given to, uh, but also uh, the expressed purpose. When we look back at that verse, it says that he was to go as a forerunner before the Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, here's the thing. Elijah did some pretty amazing things, some pretty wild things. Um, he also didn't die. He was taken up into heaven by God. That in itself is absolutely amazing. Uh, there's only two people uh, in at least uh, the, our, our, our biblically recorded history who have ever not died. Enoch in Genesis and Elijah. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of awesome history. If you go back and you actually look in the Old Testament, some of the things that Elijah was involved with and some of the things that he did and some of the reform that he brought. So what does this sound like? As it looks to, uh, uh, as we look back at this verse, what's kind of the, the main focus of what the angel is telling his mom and his daddy's going to do and what he's going to be? To proclaim the guilt of the nation of Israel and seek to turn with the power of, the, of, of this Holy Spirit, the disobedient, back to God. I'm going to read that again. To proclaim the guilt of the nation of Israel 
and seek to turn with the power of the Spirit the disobedient to God. Who does that sound like? Who does that sound like in the New Testament? Jesus. Who does that sound like in the Old Testament? Every single prophet that God sent? Maybe the entire book of Jonah? Maybe the whole Old Testament? Maybe every prophet that's ever walked the face of the earth who actually belongs to God said the exact same thing. Why? Primarily this, because God's immutable. There's, there's a good theological term to write down, immutable. He is unchanging. He's unyielding. He has purposed everything in and of himself in accordance with his own glorious and divine will. And so if God gives us a message that is relevant 2,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago, guess what it will carry unto today? Relevance, meaning, truth, power, and impact. If we think about this, how beautifully is this made manifest in the message and ministry of John the Baptist and what he did? And we haven't talked about the fullness of his ministry yet, but for those of you who know a little bit about John the Baptist, when we think about the fact that literally the exact same message that was proclaimed throughout the entirety of the Old Testament 400 years of silence after the book of Malachi, then all of a sudden he starts saying the exact same thing all over again. Why? Because we serve an immutable God. John 1 verse 7. He, John, came as a witness to testify about the light so that all, and the Greek word there for all is pos, we're going to talk about that in a minute, so that all might believe through him. A faithful Christian witness may be used by God in the salvation of the lost. A faithful Christian witness may be used by God in the salvation of the lost. Not that your witness is the, the means by which or the mode by which that person becomes saved, but he may use your individual life, if you're a true witness of Christ, to shine the, the truth of the light, Jesus Christ, in such a way that those people understand things about the Christ. And so that's why I'm so big on practical Christianity, or as the, the Puritans would have said, uh, experiential or experimental Christianity. Not that they're just dabbling in it and they're trying to figure it out, that's not what they're talking about, but that they're literally walking it out, that they're putting these biblical principles and these biblical commands uh, to the test in their own lives. And so that's why I'm, I'm huge on fighting against hypocrisy in the church. Why? Because if we do not look like what we proclaim, who's going to buy that? No one. In the same manner that if, if, if a guy who wants to sell vacuum cleaners shows up with a refrigerator and says, hey, look at how much this thing can clean your carpet, you're going to look at him and say, have you lost your mind? It's a refrigerator. The thing's not going to pick any dirt off the floor or any dust off the floor. It's going to keep food cold, unless you're the greens, in which case your refrigerator will never work, but that's a side story. That being said, so that all might believe through him, this is back speaking to John the Baptist, from his birth, from the birth of John the Baptist, and we read a little bit early, from his birth he was set apart 
A lot, a lot would argue that he actually took the vow of the Nazarene, all right? that he took the vow of the Nazarene. And one of those things was that he wasn't allowed to even eat grapes, couldn't have any product of grapes, that eliminated wine, that eliminated any concept of grape juice. However, let me spoil some historical assumptions here. Pasteurized grape juice did not exist until I believe the 1800s. So every single time you see the word wine in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, so it'd be yayin in the Old Testament in Hebrew and oinos in the New Testament, it was in some state of fermentation. There might be more or less, but it was always in some state of fermentation because pasteurization did not yet exist. Total side note there, historically. So what did he come to do? What was the purpose and the intent of John the Baptist? Uh, and I would, to, to put that down into two words, I would say to testify to witness or to testify, to speak the truth of something. And what was that truth? Ultimately, the deity of Christ. But some would say that Christ did not need to have any testimony because he in himself was a testimony to himself. Now, this is true, but if we think about that logically for just a second, God told us in the last set of verses that we just expounded through the book of John, early in chapter 1, the last set of our verses, that the darkness cannot comprehend the light. So if the light shows up and the darkness can't comprehend it, somebody's got to explain this thing to them, right? It's not like our literal analogy where if this room was pitch black and I, and I whip out some real high power flashlight and I shine it into the corner, that all of a sudden everybody in here is, oh yeah, yeah, I understand, then I see the light. That's because you understood it to begin with. You had a concept of what light and dark were. But if you had no concept of that, you wouldn't be able to even explain it. You might know something's different, but you'd have no idea what it was. And so here comes before the Messiah, Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. John came to give testimony, witness, information, truth, and detail of the coming Messiah to his fellow humans. He came to say, in essence, this light, this light Jesus, which you hate, and that's proven by the biblical account, this light which you hate, he is what you need to come out of the darkness. Without him illuminating you, without him illuminating your life, you will sit in darkness. Secondly, I want us to talk about that word, pas, all. Uh, this, this gets misconstrued sometimes. It's in the second part of John 1.7, so 1.7b. So that all, pas, might believe in him or believe through him. Now we should fall on our faces and worship God when we see this just fragment of one verse. This must be interpreted in light of Scripture. What does that mean? Uh, so if J. Johns has some presupposition that he wants to work into the biblical text, some idea or feeling or desire that I want to read into the biblical text, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to fall all over the place and probably start a cult with my foolish ideas. So everything that we understand as it pertains to the biblical text must be held in light of the totality of Scripture. Basically meaning I can't have it one way here and one way over there. If it works here, then it also has to work there. There has to be a continuity amongst my interpretation of certain things. The word all here, the word pos, is not every single human in history. I'm going to say that again. The word pos here is not every single human in history. 
This is not a proof text for any flavor of universalism. So what is universalism? Ultimately the belief that regardless of uh, what you believe in the Christ or regardless of what you believe in God or the Bible, that as long as you're generally a good person, you could be a Jew, a Greek, a Gentile, uh, a pagan, a Buddhist, uh, Islamic, uh, you could be in Japan and practice Shintoism, uh, anything you want to throw in there, as long as you're generally a good person, that you will not die and you'll be forever in heaven with God. That's universalism. All right? Universalism is a direct heresy. Why? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus Christ. So we have to understand that we cannot interpret this in light of universalism. This must be interpreted as, and this is, this is, this is, my, this is J. John's translation of, of this back part of the verse here, my interpretation, so that all who are His might believe through what John the Baptist has told us. So that all who are His might believe through what was proclaimed, through what was testified, and through what was witnessed by John the Baptist. Now, the beautiful thing concerning this is that the hope includes both the Jews and the Gentiles. This isn't just a general message that just goes just to the Jews and then everybody's flopping around on the outside and they can't get in on this thing. Why? Because if we go all the way back to Genesis 3 and we see the first gospel in Genesis 3.15, right? We know ultimately that the spiritual seed of Abraham, those who belong to Christ, includes both Jews and Gentiles, how can I prove that? Uh, let's look at the, the lineage of Jesus Christ, for example. Uh, what's one of the first uh, pagan women who's included uh, in the nation of Israel? She was a prostitute named Rahab. A prostitute. A pagan prostitute from a foreign land. And she's in the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Think about that for a second that Jesus Christ, at least his human form, was brought ultimately through the bloodline of a prostitute. Do you not see the beauty and the redemption found in Christ simply in the genealogy of him? That in itself right there points to the fact that God is gracious and that he would take professionally the lowest, most despicable possible position. And that additionally, he would mention in the bloodline of his own son, a woman, because bloodlines were measured through men. And that past that, she wouldn't even be a Jew. She'd be a pagan Gentile in a pagan land. Yet we see the redemption in her life and the redemption that was provided for her family when she was drawn into the presence of God's people, the messengers, when they told her what was going to happen, when they told her what was happening, she already knew about what was going on. Why? The witness of God. As his people left Egypt. God is preparing the way for the Christ to atone for the sins of those who are his. John 6.37. This is Jesus speaking. Red letter words. Uh, the next four references are all the words of Christ. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. John 
This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. John 6, 44. No one, no one, not one, not half of an individual, not any people group, not any family, not any individual person, not any human can come to me, Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, verses 65 and 66. And he, Jesus, was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Listen, all, every, pas in the Greek, all, every, will come to Christ by the granting will of the Father alone. We've just read four verses that back that up in Jesus' own words in the book of John, which we're working through right now. Now, this angered people in Jesus' day. We see that from the end of verse 66. It angered them so much that many of the people who were active followers, you ready for this? Professors of Jesus Christ, professors of the teachings of Christ, hypocrites, every single one of them. Why? Because when he said something they didn't like, they walked away. Out. They were in the darkness. Jesus shined the light on them. They ran away. They didn't want anything to do with it. And if it happened to Jesus, think about this for a second, if it happened to the Son of God, what do you think will happen to you in your life when you faithfully and accurately proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, if they hated me, if they didn't like me, if they ultimately wound up killing me for my message, do not be surprised if they do the exact same thing to you. What did James say? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This was the first verse that we worked through in the sanctuary and I was standing down there. That's the whole, that's the whole flight path of Jesus' ministry. Guess what I'm going to say? Jesus wakes up every day. God, you know what's going to happen when I tell them about us, right? And God is, in essence, saying, yes, absolutely. Ultimately, they're going to kill you because I, that's how I planned it. Think about that for a second. Yet every single day, he would pray to his Father and he would ask that God draw his people unto himself. Knowing that even some of the same people who walked out their depravity in actually murdering Christ later were converted. That's beautiful. That's amazing and that's wonderful. Christ offended people and he simply expressed the truth of his father and people fought against him. Now listen, John the Baptist, these are the words of John the Baptist, not, excuse me, not the direct words in the beginning. Nonetheless, Luke 3, 7 through 9. So he, and this is not Jesus, this would be John the Baptist. So he, John the Baptist, began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. Now we're going to say what he said. Quote, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. 
For I say to you, that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Go back to verse 7 if you don't mind. On the slides, go back to verse 7 for me. There we go. You brood of vipers. Primarily, he was speaking to the religious leaders and teachers of the day. Those people who thought that they actually had Old Testament Judaism under wraps. They had it locked down. They were the people who knew everything that was going on. And what does he do? He immediately comes and he tells them their condition. And he throws them under the bus. Why? Here, let, let me explain something to you just from a logical, worldly perspective. Um, if I am alone in the woods at night and I cannot see the stars and I have a map and I have a compass and I do not know where I am, all right, I might be able to get some kind of general direction, but I will not be able to find where I'm supposed to be or where I'm supposed to be going if I do not know my current position. However, if I know my current position, I can tell you for a fact that I can walk for 20 or 30 miles in a generally straight line and get to exactly where I need to get on the ground if I can't see my hand in front of my face. I can do that. I have the ability to do that. Many people have the ability to do that. But that's predicated on the fact that I understand where my start point is. If I don't know where my start point is, then I have to get some kind of reference to figure out where I am before I can figure out where I need to go. It's just logical, right? In the same way that if people do not understand their spiritual condition, Christ means nothing to them. Christ means absolutely nothing to them if they do not understand their spiritual condition. So what does he do? He starts off very harshly with difficult words. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What he's saying here is that if you are actually proclaiming to be real, why don't you prove it with your life? Bear the fruits that you're saying that you have if you are indeed a son of Abraham. What does he say? Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Basically here, what he's doing is saying, you're still hypocrites. You can say that Abraham is your father or God is your father, all that you want. But literally, even, even, even if there was no one to be raised up to be a son of God, God could literally raise up some rocks and they would praise him and worship him. That's what he's equating their faith to. Deadness, inanimacy, nothingness, a rock. And think about that for a second. That's the gospel message right there. That is literally verbatim the gospel message. There's a terrible condition on your life. If you do not repent of your sins and believe the gospel, or you continue to try and fake it, there is no hope for you. You fool, the rocks will praise God more than you will. However, if there is change in your life, bear fruits with keeping and repentance. Continue on. Prove the fact that you're a real tree. Prove the fact that you have real fruit. This is, the, this is literally verbatim the gospel right here in, in just this little section. And so what happens, what happens if the tree does not bear good fruit or if it continues to try and say, hey, everybody, I've got fresh fruit and all it's dripping off is rottenness? Well, verse 9, the axe is already laid to the root of the tree, 
So every tree, every single tree, every false professor and every tree that never gave a hoot about Jesus to begin with, they do not bear good fruit. So what happens? They're cut down and thrown into the fire. That's the entirety of the gospel message. There's the New Testament in like two verses. There were many wicked, unbelieving people who did not want the Christ or the message of John, yet they came to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. Why? Faux spirituality. Hypocrisy. Frauds, liars, imaginers, whatever you want to throw in there, but not real. False. False. John recognized this and called them a brood of vipers. He then proclaimed their doom, the wrath of God, and the axe laid to the root of their lives. His command is the central theme of his preaching and teaching. What was the command? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from your sins. Believe Christ. Bear fruit. What were the first words of Christ in his earthly preaching and teaching ministry? Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John, and this is John the Baptist, now after John the Baptist had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's a dirty word, repent. That is a dirty, dirty word to say in churches exponentially more dirty than to say in prisons or on the street somewhere or in your interactions with other people. However, you start saying the word repent in a church and people want to burn you. Every single place that I've stepped my foot, the most backlash that I've gotten on the word repentance has been from people who are part of church congregations or when we've been asked to speak or teach at different churches and the word repentance comes up. Brother, you don't need to talk about that word so much. That's a dangerous word. That makes people feel uncomfortable. The words of Christ make you feel uncomfortable? Probably speaking something to your spiritual condition. Because here's what I've noticed in my life, and as I go back and I look at uh, the Puritans, for example, uh, in, in their, their, their demonstration of practical Christianity, their experimental Christianity, their experiential Christianity, literally they would grow in their understanding of the need and necessity for Christians to actually have repentance in their life. Why? Because guess what? I should be repenting more now than when I started being a Christian. Because I realize more and more and more the things in my life that do not look perfectly like Christ. Now understand this, this does not mean that now I'm just out committing sin all over the place, but that I'm starting to understand things in my life that are sinful that I used to not be able to put my eyes on. Things like what? Lord, I've neglected to read your word today. I've neglected that. Your praise shall ever be on my lips. I will meditate on your law day and night. We could go through about a thousand different verses on why we should daily be saturating ourselves in the scripture. Now am I saying that we should approach that in some legalistic term and then condemn ourselves and, and be down on ourselves and gather a group around us because we're just so depressed? No, that's not what I'm saying. No. But we should be understanding how quickly our own desires 
and our own wants or our own busy schedule can usurp God and his throne over our lives. At least in practice, not in reality, if we're Christians. So we should repent of that. We should turn from that. We should flee that. If, 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 for example, I am, uh, a lot of times when I am mentally engaged in something, it's very difficult for me to pull off or to multitask. My wife can witness and testify about that until the cows come home. And I'm just not very good at multitasking. And sometimes if I'm, if I'm deep in, 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 in a mental task or building something or fixing something or reading something, and if she's talking to me and she asks a question, Sometimes I will respond in a very monotonous tone because my mind is elsewhere, and that will hurt her feelings. How prideful am I? How unloving am I? I should repent for things like that. So you see, the more that you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ, it's not just, oh, thank God I didn't go out and kill somebody with an axe today. That's not what I'm talking about in terms of repentance in the Christian life. You're, you're darn right you shouldn't be killing people with axes. You don't get a star for that. That's just kind of a known. But as we grow in our understanding of ourselves and who we are, again, that's predicated on our understanding of who God is. And the more that we're drawn into his presence, the more that we're drawn into a knowledge and an understanding of what he wants, who he is, and how he loves then we see the areas in our own lives where we fall short. What should that bring about in us? Repentance. Repentance. There's a guy inside of me I call Bad J. And Bad J literally wants to put hands on people when they say that the words of Christ are too discouraging or are too harsh to speak in a church. And I need to repent of that because those people are speaking their spiritual condition. And they need help. And they need prayer. Total aside, we're called to something much higher than every other human being on the planet is called to. We're called to something much higher to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ with our lives and our actions and our families and our relationships called to do that. We're called to proclaim, to actively profess the gospel. said it before, I'll say it again. This is a terrible hobby, Christianity. This is a terrible hobby, if you really think about it. What's it get most people in the world? Dead. Most third world countries come out, profess your, your faith, thrown in a gulag for, I don't know, 10 years, beat up by the authorities, or shot in the head, decapitated, burned alive, put in a metal cage and thrown in a swimming pool. That's ISIS's new favorite tactic with Christians. This is a terrible hobby. This is a calling, it's not a hobby. We should be people about our Father's business, people who are walking out Christianity daily in our lives. That's what John the Baptist did. I'm trying to draw this out in front of you to see that God has effectually drawn His people from the earth without fail, and He has not faltered in the least of His promises. 
The death of Christ was sure. Listen, and it purchased all, pos, all of those who are his. How can I prove that? Revelation 5, 6 through 10. And I, then this is the Apostle John, the guy who wrote the book about talking about John the Baptist. He received this vision from Christ Jesus. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, capitalized Jesus, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. This is setting our stage for our understanding of the rest of this verse. We're going to read that in just a second. Everything in heaven has fallen on its face in front of Christ Jesus, and he's about to speak. They're, excuse me, they're about to speak to him. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the book and break its seals, for you, Jesus, were slain. And purchased from God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. I'm going to read that again. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Listen, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Does that say that God purchased every single man, woman, and child on the planet? That says that God purchased from among the planet, from among every tribe and tongue and nation, people. He's made them, these people, to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Now, can you fathom this? Can you understand this? Can you reconcile this? Because I can't. That the almighty God of the universe is literally drawing his people to himself. He's giving them the hearts to respond. He's giving them eyes to see. He's giving them ears to hear. He is giving them life from death. He's explaining the light in the midst of the darkness. He's drawing them out. And this is the most beautiful thing I can ever possibly tell you. You were bought with a price. You were purchased as from a slave market. That is the underlying Greek in the word redemption. Purchased as in a slave market. That the blood of Christ was literally spilt in order that not he throws his blood out there with the hopes that a couple people will come to him, but he looks in the future and he says, this one is mine. I will lay down my life for this woman, this man, or this child. And in that is beauty because if I came in here and I just, I threw $100 into the congregation and I said, congratulations guys, that's for you. There would be practically no meaning to that, but if someone came up and they thrust a $100 bill in your pocket and said, this is for you. I put this out here for you. I, I, I knew your situation and I wanted to help you. So I came to you and I did this because that's what I wanted. There is so much more beauty in that than someone just throwing something out there and saying, well, maybe somebody will buy it on it. Now take that about an infinite step further. 
I literally just died in order that you would live. Now, if I just throw that out there generally, we get universalism. We get a really cheap gospel. We get really weak grace. But if I come and I shake you by the shoulders and say, guess what I did? I, Jesus, literally just got slaughtered on the cross for your sin, and I'm drawing you into a relationship with me because you wanted nothing to do with me, but I am here. What does the end of that verse say? And I have made you to be a kingdom and a priest to God, and you will reign upon the earth. That is exponentially more different than, hey, Jesus died for your sins, y'all. Come on down, say yes at the front. We'll dunk you in the water, then you can enter into church membership. That's a lot different. That is exponentially different than someone being rocked to their core, just as if the, the message of John the Baptist, right? You brood of vipers, you wicked person. Look at your, your sin and your evil before God. Understand your condition. Only when you understand your condition can you understand the love and the grace and the mercy and the wonder of God and salvation. Otherwise, it will be cheap to you. It will be meaningless to you. It will just be a hobby. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace means nothing to people who are false professors in Christianity. But when you understand the context and the implication of what amazing grace is and what it means, then you can say, oh God, you have done it all and I have done nothing. It is not about me, it is about you. It is about the Christ, the Messiah. And I will willingly lower myself to, to lay my hands to your feet in worship of you. That is much different than someone saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. I said yes to the four questions. I got dunked in water, and I'm a church member. No, but you see someone who's on fire for God, you know it. When you see someone whose life is bent after the things of God, you know it. Why? Because you've been drawn into the presence of someone who's different. Someone who is holy, who is literally set apart from the rest of humanity. When Chrissy and I are traveling or, or when uh, I'm talking to someone on the phone, you ever, you ever have one of those moments where, where, where you start, it's, it's almost like you feel like you're probing the other person, you're just kind of asking questions around it, and then all of a sudden, everything clicks and you realize you're both Christians? You realize that? Like, like when, in one of those moments, someone who could be from uh, a different country, they might be a different skin color, they might have different socioeconomic background, whatever, who cares? You're like, oh my gosh, this is awesome, you're a Christian? Let's be excited about God, let's talk about God, let's talk about what he's doing in your life. Let me tell you what he's doing in my life, in my church, in my community. Let me tell you what he saved me from. Death. Christ transcends everything. Christ transcends languages. And when people see that, when they understand that, when, when you get together with another Christian, you know what it's like, especially when you're walking around in the midst of a world that's full of darkness. This is real. This is actually real. In closing, John 1.8. He, John, the Baptist, was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. 
our next point. We are the messengers. We are not greater than the message and or the message maker. We're not greater than the message and or the message maker. In closing, the beloved disciple draws a clear distinction between the messenger and the message. John the Baptist came to testify to proclaim the truth of the light. But he himself indicated the fact that he was not the Messiah. He was not equal to the message. He was not equal to or greater than the maker of the message. John 1.15 Now, John, this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist testified about him, Jesus, and cried out saying, This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Ah, here's the really cool part of uh, systematic theology or just understanding our Bible. If we actually go back and we look at the birth accounts, we understand that how much older is John the Baptist than Jesus? Six months. In an earthly, earthly sense, six months older. Yet John says something very telling. He who comes... Excuse me, I'm just totally messed that up in my mind. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. There we go. Now that I can read. Think about that. I'm older than this dude physically speaking, but he came and existed before I did. He's just pointing back to the deity of Christ. John 3, verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses that I, and this is John the Baptist, I, John the Baptist, have said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Some may say, okay, well, I, I understand he wasn't the Christ. Well, why did John the Baptist come? In his own words, read with me in John 5.34. But the testimony which I, John the Baptist, received is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. I say these things so that you may be saved. Say you, say you were a blind man. You'd never seen the ocean you'd never heard of sharks, and you swam out about a mile off the coast of California during the height of great white mating season, and you cut your leg on a piece of coral right as you got in the water. And as you start swimming out there, and you're blind, and you're just having a good time, and it's feeling good, and you're, you're basking in the sun, you have no clue what, what sharks are, or the fact that there's a pack of them circling you, are you going to have any idea how much danger you're in? No, you're not. You're just going to be cruising, enjoying the water and the weather. And then all of a sudden, some Coast Guard dude in a skiff comes up next to you and he says, uh, Sir, you're being circled by death and you're bleeding out right now. These things are about to kill you and you will never be brought back to life once they get a hold of you. I say these things so that you may be saved. How loving would that Coast Guard guy be if he came up and he said, hey, doing all right, buddy? Oh, yeah, I'm just swimming here, having a good day. All right, well, since you're okay, I'm just going to head out. How, how loving would we say that that Coast Guard guy is? Totally unloving. We would say he's twisted and messed up, and he would honestly probably get uh, court-martialed and thrown into prison once that blind guy in the middle of the ocean gets eaten alive by sharks. Yet, we take a faithful messenger, 
of Jesus Christ who says the exact same thing, uh, sir or ma'am, there's a great malady upon you. It is your sin and the wickedness of your sin that separates you from a holy and a righteous God. And if you do not flee the wrath to come, Ezekiel 33, watchman on the wall, if you do not flee the wrath to come and flee into the city of refuge, that's Jesus Christ, the city of refuge, if you do not flee to him, you will be swept away by the wrath of God. You know what we'll say to that person? You're so unloving and unkind. That didn't motivate me or make me feel good about myself. Not a Christian. Person doesn't care about me. No, that person cares more about you than you do. A person cares more about your, the eternal nature of your soul than you do because guess what they were willing to do? Be hated by you, be castigated, be publicly humiliated by you, be thrown under a bus by you for telling you the truth. How can I prove that? Let's go back four months, look at Wakeman Talks. Look at Wakeman Talks. Demeaned, ridiculed, threatened, my family threatened, our congregation quasi-threatened over proclaiming the truth of God and human sexuality. Think about that for a second. We spoke the truth and got targeted for it. My wife was reading me an article that now you can't even call someone a pregnant woman. It's a pregnant person. I literally cannot make this up. That's Romans 1 for you, by the way, when we see such a descent in human reasoning and the ability to even understand things that people would say something so foolish. It's not a pregnant woman, it's a pregnant person. I know a little bit about history, but never once in my entire life have I heard of a man getting pregnant, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. So throughout all of recorded human history, the preponderance of our species and just nature itself... Never once has there been a man who's been pregnant. Yet we dare not call a woman a woman. Look at what's happening in our government. And I'm not speaking on political issues. I am speaking on Christian issues. You can no longer be a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, an aunt, an uncle, a nephew, a niece, a grandmother, a grandfather, etc., etc., etc. Because that would presume your gender identity. Now it's a, a parent a sibling, a relative, uh, a, uh, a parent's sibling, if you're an aunt or an uncle. And when we try and strip away the truth of what we are, innately, even down to the biological senses, what do we have sneaking in? Sin and Satan. When the truth can't even reign supreme in something as simple as your gender. But I say these things so that you may be saved. That's the end of verse 34. But I say these things so that you may be saved. But I say these things at the possibility of my own life, yet I will say them because even in the midst of that, there is possibility for your salvation. That if perhaps God so moves on your behalf that he will draw you unto himself. I don't know that, God does. That if he has purchased you, you will not sit there and flop around. He will draw you out of darkness into light. Or as the reformer said in the Protestant Reformation, post tenebris lux. 
after darkness light. That's the biblical message. That's the Jesus message. You see, we must follow John in this proclamation of the Christ. We are not the Christ, but we are called to spread the message of the Christ and the gospel message and advance his kingdom here on this planet. He came to give a testimony of Christ, John the Baptist. So how do we do this? How do we live? How do we explain to people the Christ? How do we give a good witness with our lives? How do we do that? It might not always look like a sermon or a Sunday school lesson. Let me say that again. A lot of people get that confused. It might not always look like a sermon or a Sunday school lesson. It might be as simple as the way you love your wife or your children in front of others. My wife and I, my family, the last place we were at, 85% of the children under the age of 18 were raised by their grandparents because either one or both of their parents were either dead or incarcerated because of meth. And so the words that I would say meant nothing to those kids because I was a man until they saw me love on my wife and my kids. And they would not hear a single word I said in any way whatsoever, but after a while they would start coming up and they would gravitate to our family. And they would gravitate to my wife and I. Our oldest daughter Emma would have uh, uh, kids over from the local high school and they didn't want to leave. They didn't want to leave her home because we loved each other and that was something that they had not experienced. So the love that we had for each other was a tangible evidence of the fact that something was different and that something that was different was Christ. Think about that for a second. It might be through random acts of kindness. It could be as simple as sending a friend or a family member a verse that God has impacted you with. Boop, boop, boop. Type that out on text, send it off. That's not very hard. I can't, I can't begin to tell you how encouraged I have been in my life when I get a text out of the middle of nowhere and it's like, hey, knucklehead, read this verse. And I look it up or it's already sent out for me and I'm like, oh my gosh, I needed that right now. That was perfect timing. Thank you, God. But pray that every one of those situations whatever you find yourself in, every one of those situations evolves into a relationship that allows for you to present the truth of Christ. I'm not one of those who's going to chase somebody down the street and try and ram the gospel down their throat. That's not Christianity. Let me say that again. That might contradict something that you believe. If you've never heard that before, talk to me afterwards. I am not going to chase somebody down the street and ram Christianity down their throat because I do not see it once done like that in the Bible. But my hope and my prayer is that through my life and through my witness or through whatever God allows me to do, that it might open up opportunities where I do have the ability to present the gospel. This is why it's so vitally important for us, plural Christians, to know the Bible. This is why it's so vitally important that we actually know and we understand and we read and we comprehend the Bible. That doesn't mean that you have to be on PhD level. That's not what I'm saying but that wherever you are, whatever your starting point is now, today, wherever you find yourself at, that tomorrow you got a little bit more. And the day after that, you got a little bit more. That there is growth in your life. That there's a growth in your love and your desire for the Scriptures. Because here's a logical question. How can I make a Big Mac if I don't know what the ingredients are? Ah, 
poop. <laughs> Got drawn into it with that analogy. If I don't know what the ingredients or the steps are in making a Big Mac, I can't make a Big Mac, and a Big Mac's really simple to make. There are a lot more important things on the line than making a burger here as it pertains to our Christian lives. How can I tie my shoes if I don't know what knots are, and how can I do anything well if I don't understand anything? The answer is, you can't. That's why we have to grow. That's why we have to know our Bibles. This is why we must be a people about this biblical gospel. We must be a people about Jesus. We must be a people about our Father's business. We must be a people that eats and sleeps and breathes Christ. So let us not falter in this. The greatest proclamation of the truth incarnate, Christ. Let us unwaveringly and unrelentingly advance forward every day in the grace that God gives His children. Let us love and lead and learn and live a life, there's a lot of alliteration in that, that demonstrates the fact that we are ambassadors for the Christ. We're messengers of the gospel. We're messengers of the reconciliation found in Christ Jesus. Emissaries, if you will, of the Lord. We're men and women and some children who have been bought with the most precious of all things the blood of Christ. Bow with me. Father, we don't, we don't always get it perfect. And in that, we understand first and foremost, God, that we need mercy. And we need your grace. But Lord, help us to see those areas in our lives where we need improvement, God, to look more like Christ. And Lord, spur us on God, undergird us, strengthen us, surround us, support us. God, just put your hands on us and use us as you see fit, God. Use us in this community. Use us in our families. Use us in the world, Lord, to do whatever you called us to do because, God, you're good and you're real and you're true and you're faithful. And, and, and Christ came and died so that we would even have the ability to speak to you. God, I pray that you would change this people, that you would grow this congregation, Lord, that you would spur on in them a desire to read your word. God, a desire to hear what you have said. Lord, that we would read those words and those books and those truths found in the Bible. God, that we would read them with eyes that have been opened and ears that can hear. God, help us, lead us, guide us, direct us, and change us every single day. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. In accordance with your will we ask. Amen.